Hey team, it's Matt Rinkine here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. So I got to thank my dad for that because it wouldn't happen. And if anybody can hear this, please don't be me. I am a purger. I'm not a big memorabilia person. I love collecting memories. I don't like collecting memorabilia. And I don't know if I was just young or maybe I was almost embarrassed. I would just throw stuff away. My parents were so good. They were like, you will regret this for the rest of your life. Do not throw anything away. Just give it to us. God bless them. They would take things and then make something of them. What's going on? Randall, what's happening, brother? How you doing, man? How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How about I'm doing fantastic. I'm excited to meet you. I asked Ted, who is the person that's like, they're an absolute badass. They're amazing. They've had an inspirational impact in your life. They're full of energy. They've got a great story. Just who's the person that comes to mind first and your name came up? right away. Oh, I figured you were going to say, you know, all of those people were busy, they couldn't schedule. And so they ended up with me. And I'm like, you know what, I'll take it. Well, I can see that you could take a joke. So yes, yeah, so we may have some jokes moving forward. Yeah, no, your name did come up first. After seeing your resume, your background, the form you filled out, it's just a real honor to be here with you today and excited to impact our audience. And the recording is on. I don't know if this is actually going to get used in the recording yet, but I like to have it on because you never know when the magic's going to happen. Oh, 100%. I mean, I shaved my head so that people don't realize how old I am, but <laughs> there was an old saying, you know, don't say it unless you're willing to see it published on the cover of the New York Times. Now, I guess the version of that would be, are you willing to see it on a podcast or somewhere else on TikTok? But it still stands true to me. I have never said something that I don't mind being repeated because it's too challenging. It's too hard to try to keep different personas deconflicted. I'm going to be me unapologetically. It's going to rub some people the wrong way. Other people are going to love it. Those are my people. And we're just going to keep it rolling. I'm totally with you. I'm with you. I wonder how long have you felt that way or thought that way? When did you realize that? Because I'm with you. We as men go through some level of maturing where maybe we realize this or maybe we're born with it. I'm curious how you might respond to that when you came to that realization. You're comfortable with you. When you have had enough life experience to be comfortable in your confidence. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I was popular, but I wasn't like the coolest kid in school. Like I got along with everybody, but I dealt with the same insecurities of am I wearing the right clothes? I mean, anybody that says they're not, you know, they're not being honest. And then I went to college and I went to West Point for undergrad and I wanted to do my best, but you know, the military really wasn't my thing. So I kind of had to find my way there and, and not punch somebody in the face that was yelling at me every time they yelled at me. I'd figure <laughs> out how to be more disciplined. And then I thought, well, if I could just get out of this, then once I'm back into the private world, I'll find my way. And I was at West Point for 9-11. And so best laid plans went out the window. I served in combat most of my time. 
I was scared at times and it's a crazy experience to go through and you wonder if you're leading your soldiers the right way, if people's lives are in your hands. And so you're still a big bundle of nerves. I get out and I'm like, well, I'm really good at movement to contact and raids. What the fun where who's ever going to hire me to do anything? And so now I'm like a big bundle of nerves. Like, how am I going to find my way in the private world? And I don't wear a uniform anymore. And I don't have a big team of people that are pulling triggers and we can kick anyone's ass on the planet. Now, what do I do? And so there was a big bundle of nerves. Now, the whole time, right, you're like a swan. You know, you're cool, calm, and collected, but underneath, you're paddling like crazy. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here thinking, I think I'm fooling everybody. So I'm not my authentic self. I'm walking through the halls of my MBA thinking I'm confident, trying to find my way. And meanwhile, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, imposter syndrome, I shouldn't even be here. What do I know? All of that is a snowball. Like it's a snowball of your own inertia around your own personality, your own persona, if you will. My take has always been the purpose of life is to live. And if you can live well and help others, but you can't really do that if you're not really comfortable in your own skin, because you're going to constantly be a big bundle of nerves. And so at some point you look back and you go, what am I so fun where I'm worried about? I did this and this and this, and this didn't break me. And I was nice to this person. I got this person a job and I love this person and I forgave that person. And you know what? I'm not that bad. I like who I am. And then when somebody challenges you on it, you're like, no, I'm going to do it my way. And I have the experience and the scars and the know-it-all to know that I don't know everything, but I know who I want to be and what direction I want to go. And I'm not going to let negative influences make me someone I'm not. You should always continue to learn and you can always continue to grow, but you've kind of dialed in the who you want to be. I've felt that probably over the last, I would say, really come on strong in the last five years. I didn't go out of the womb confident. I didn't go into college confident. I mean, I had a certain air of confidence that I kind of faked, but all of that nonsense, let me get off my soapbox for a second and I'll say it very clearly. I hated the feeling of going into school not having read an assignment and sitting in my chair, hoping to God the professor or the teacher didn't call on me because I knew I wasn't prepared. But now when you read the book and you did the assignment, sitting in your chair like, bring it on. Eye contact, baby. I'm staring at you. I dare you to call on me. You want a pop quiz? I got this. You do the same thing in life. When you've prepared enough, you're ready for anything and you like dare people to challenge you because you've done the homework. I think when you do the homework on yourself, it'll give you that confidence to dial in your personality. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And you said some words that really kind of triggered me and got me into a real positive space. You said the word prepared a number of times, and that's one of the key words that I think about as my own mental filters. So I'm going to come back to that and maybe ask you about that word prepared again as it relates to some of the life events and experiences that you've had. And one of them I'd love to go back to for as much as you're willing to share, Randall, I'd love to go back to, you mentioned you were at West Point when 9-11 happened and then plans kind of shifted. And from what you can recall, what you're willing to share, what was your experience of 9-11 when you were at West Point? Yeah, you know, it's funny. And I'll always say I'm transparent and honest, not because I'm some altruistic person, because it's too hard to keep track of lies. And so I went to West Point with the idea that I would not have to serve in the military. So this was the middle of the 90s, late 90s. Rumsfeld was downsizing the army, downsizing the military. Matter of fact, peacetime. 
And so people were going to West Point, which if people don't know, it's a military academy. And so it's a free school. It's a prestigious school. You get a great education, but then you basically pay it back with your service. So you serve five years after graduation. I didn't come from a wealthy family, but my parents are awesome. I love them to death. I thought, what a cool gift to give back to them. That money they were saving to help me go to college, now they can spend it on themselves. So, you know, I'm going to go to West Point. But it wasn't hey, I'm going to go to war. It was like, I'm going to go to West Point. You know, I'm going to go to this really nice school. It's a different experience. And they were paying people like a hundred grand to give up their commission to not serve because they were downsizing. So I got in, which I honestly didn't think I was going to get in, got in. And then I was like, well, hell, I got in. So now I better go because I've never been a quitter. I figured I wouldn't get in. So I would apply and at least try. And I didn't really think that I was committing to much. Then I got in and I was like, oh crap, now I bit off more than I could chew. So I better start chewing. So I went. But then the first three years is exactly what I expected. It's a military school. You got to learn to march and you got to learn to bite your tongue sometimes and you get a little bit of discipline and it's an experience. And I like that. It was something different than you know partying in high school and going to a college and probably what I would have done is party some more. 9-11 was my senior year. So I remember it was obviously in the morning. Class kind of got delayed because it all started happening in the morning as everybody was eating breakfast, getting ready, about to go to school for the first class. And you couldn't have scripted this better. My first class was this full bird colonel who was ripped out of a comic book. Jaw out to here, gravelly voice. I think he jumped into Grenada. We sit down and like everybody's shook because this thing just happened. And he's looking at all of us, not saying anything. And some people were like, I'm going to break of tears. And he's like, well, cadets, you're all going to war. And it was like, oh, that's a wake-up call. Wow. <laughs> so you kind of just think you're starting your day, and you thought you were going to a college to help your parents not pay for college, and you realize that probably within the year, you're going to be getting shot at. And you know that's not a realization that a lot of generations have had to face. It's a surreal moment. I don't even know that it even became real until I was actually shot at. Like, what in the fun where am I doing? But the cool thing about it is nothing reveals character like that. We live in an era... Thankfully, with an all-volunteer army, even though we didn't know what we were getting into, we still volunteered to wear the uniform. And the exceptional men and women who served, I won't divert to you know crazy political talk, but Americans should be very proud of the fighting force that has been created in America. A hundred percent. Amen. Yes. Without even any hesitation. Yes. And I say like only in the movies are other countries a threat. And, and I'm, I'm not being a stupid, far right, boastful American. I am saying we have been waging war for 30 years now, and we are very good at it. Russia, well, now Russia is a joke because Ukraine gave them a thumping, but Russia and China cannot stand against America in a conventional fight. Not ever not even close. And it is one part just how well equipped we are. It's one part how trained we are, but it's the people, the people we have and watching, you know, an 18 year old kid who was talking about the strip club last night, negotiate a ceasefire with tribal leaders the next morning. You're like, who are you? You know, it's like, it is just incredible. The caliber of people we have serving both when I was in and then still today above reproach. It's incredible. I thank the experience because I was exposed to an incredible situation being led and managed by just extraordinary men and women. Well, 
Thank you, brother, for the service, and I love you for sharing that. And I feel the exact same way coming from a military family with a lot of service members. And I would share, going back to the thread that we started on about being prepared, you said it was a surreal experience, you're going to war, and then the next thing that you shared was your eyes got open when you got shot at for the first time. So I wonder, when you were in your first combat experience, how prepared were you for that? What was that like your first time? You know, what's interesting is, and I think a lot of people who've served in kinetic units and in combat would tell you, it's a weird dichotomy of moving fast and moving slow. I say moving fast because you do things based on muscle memory. Like what the military is really good at is teaching you what to do when you don't have time to think about it. So everything is these TTPs, uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures. It's all SOP, standard operating procedures, because For as long as we can remember, you have to account for fear. You have to account for fog of war. And so you want people to not even think about it. When you're typing, you're not really thinking about typing. Your fingers are just, you know, if you can type. I'm sorry for anybody who can't type. I'm not insulting you. But when you type, you don't really think about it. You just type and your brain just takes over. Same way we use the spoken word. And so the training just takes over. It's incredible because like none of us had ever been shot at before. But the minute we get shot at, Return fire. You're talking to your people. You're telling people to reload. You're you know, getting people behind cover. You're attending to the hurt. You're just doing things that you've been trained to do, and it just turns on without even thinking about it. And it's really incredible to watch this machine all come together, and it's based on that training, based on that preparation that you're able to do it. And just because you're a first world country doesn't mean that you're good at that. Like When you watch the footage of the Russians in Ukraine... They are horribly prepared, horribly trained, and just basic tactics they don't understand. Like, why would you do this when, you know, this is happening? Or if this is the threat, why are you putting your forces on this defilade? You know, there's just a lot of stupid things they're doing. I couldn't be more proud that all those hard days of training where you just wish it would end, man, it saved lives for sure. And it has made us a very incredible fighting force. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective from someone who's been in combat. And i love to move forward to when you finished your combat tours. I wonder if you can reflect on it now. What did that prepare you for? What skills, mindset, talents now do you have that that really prepared you for, Randall? Yeah, it was probably different for me a little bit. One of the things, again, small diversion, if people haven't read it, there's a book called Startup Nation. They don't pay me for saying that, but it's about this idea of what is service meant to the entrepreneurial innovation ecosystem in Israel? And it's kind of weird. It's a non-obvious thought. You're kind of thinking like, wait a minute. Well, I mean, I don't know. Everybody in Israel has to serve. Yes. Israel is a very innovative place. Like a lot of people think that it's more like Silicon Valley than any other city in America in terms of just entrepreneurs raising money and building tech firms and thinking about how to innovate in new and creative ways. And they cite service in that book as being a really important component of that, which I think that's one thing now that America has not done well. How do we help our fighting men and women transition into private sector and understand that their skill sets are valuable. Because a lot of people don't understand that. They get out of service and we have a big mental health crisis, especially when you're in combat, because when you are the tip of the spear, and even if you're fighting wars that arguably, look, let's be honest, fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan is not the same as fighting against the Nazi horde and saving the free world. But you still feel a sense of purpose, if not only to your other soldiers. And 
when you have that sense of purpose taken away because you can no longer serve shoulder to shoulder with the men and women you served with, where do you find your way? What's your purpose? How do you transition? And a lot of people end up finding themselves security guards or supply chain management, or there's these roles that they think, well, you were in the military, you love bureaucracy and organizational development and alignment, go do this job. And it's like, well, hold on. Why can't someone get out of the military and go work for Goldman Sachs? Why can't someone, you know, go be a doctor? Why can't, you know, how does these experiences lend themselves to doing anything you want, to just being an exceptional individual that went through exceptional things and taking that and applying it to non-obvious industries? And I did. I was like, look, I was in the military, but I hated being told what to do. And that, that has been something that I've known my whole life. I hate having a boss. And so even in the military, I managed to find my way around really ever having a boss. Like everyone just kind of let me do what I wanted to do. And another small diversion, if you are very good at certain things, you will get more flexibility at all the other things you want to do. So I got really good grades in school. So my teachers would leave me alone if I didn't want to come to school one day. Or if I needed an extension on an assignment, being an asshole does not serve you. And so whether you have kids that are of younger age or otherwise, respect your elders, respect your teachers, perform. And I always thought it was so stupid, like the slackers. You're not cool because you make fun of the teacher. You're not cool because you don't do the homework. You're an idiot. And you're not very forward thinking. So I was always very good at things so that no one worried about me and where I was. They always knew I was doing something of value because, you know, I did something of value. So I've always liked working out. I very rarely ever did PT in the Army because they always knew that what I was doing on my own was harder than what they were doing in groups. And so I was like, look, I don't want to run in formation because you're running too slow. I'm going to run on my own. Just leave me alone. And they did. Now, that doesn't help with camaraderie sometimes, but I had my way to try to make both ends meet. Anyways, I hated command and control, and I knew that when I got out of the Army, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I I didn't want to ever have a boss. I wanted to give my resume to nobody. Again, some of that was probably a big bundle of nerves. Like, hey, what does my resume really say? That I'm good at combat? I'm not doing big billion-dollar deals on Wall Street, so even if I give my resume to somebody... They're probably not going to hire me. So I better be an entrepreneur and give myself a job because otherwise no one's going to hire me. And that kind of led me down the route of entrepreneurship. So still being self-aware, realize that to be a good entrepreneur, you should be passionate about whatever it is that you're going to build a business around. I wasn't passionate about any one thing. I had some ideas and I had some things that I thought might make a company, but I knew that if I'm going to do this, I got to be all in. And so it was fun where now what? And I thought, well, next best thing is know your enemy. All right. How's that? Okay. Okay. I think we're back. I mean, I know we're back on recording. I want to talk about this. (laughs) Absolutely, man. Okay. We just had a major technology snafu here, team. So, Randall. It's the best possible thing that can happen. So, I mean, look, we're we're on the Eternal Optimist podcast, right? Murphy's Law. Fun where it happens. And so, whether you're an entrepreneur... (laughs) Whether you're a parent, I mean, these things are going to happen and you cannot panic. And you got to smile about it. Life is chaos. Having kids is chaos. Running a company is chaos. And if you are so wound tight that you think that a slip up, even if it's nobody's fault or even if it is your fault, I had probably a couple too many windows open and I screwed this up and I'm messing with Matt's flow. 
you got to just roll with the punches. you got to see the other side of these obstacles. You can't let that break your flow. And one of the best ways I can kind of frame this analogy is public speaking. Mm-hmm. So many people have a hard time public speaking or giving just presentations because they want to get it right, which is great. I love that people care, but they'll script it word by word. Mm. And then what ends up happening is you're running through that script in your mind and you're reading it and you're good and you're good. And you, man, you've rehearsed this thing for hours the night before and you skip a sentence and your brain goes into panic. And it's like, wait, what sentence was that? Where am I? How do I pick back up? Oh my God. And this is why people (laughs) tell you, think about bullets and then just speak from the heart. You know, be prepared, understand your material, understand your content, but just speak because things are going to happen and you're going to go off the rails and the recording is going to stop or you're going to be in the mid sentence and your phone's going to ring. And you got to just be able to understand that the world does not need to be that serious sometimes. And sometimes these are opportunities to be human and authentic. Like one of the cool things about the pandemic is now you get this glimpse into people's homes that you didn't have before. And when their cat jumps up on their lap, middle of a presentation, don't panic and apologize. Be like, this is Mr. Snuggles. Hey, Mr. (laughs) Snuggles, say hi. Be a human being, be authentic and know that everybody's going through the same chaos and don't let it rattle you because that's what makes life fun. It's the spice of life. Agree, and I want to challenge you with a story swap. I'm going to go first. And I'm going to invite you to share your version of this. We're going to go public speaking. We're going to go what could have been or was the most embarrassing moment and how we dealt with it. And I'm going to go back to 2001. The audience is a couple thousand people. I'm on stage at a sales conference. I've got a suit on, and I run up to the microphone as I'm introduced, and I do a jump stop. I do a jump, and I stop, and No one can hear this. No one can see this at that exact moment. The back of my suit pants split from the belt down to the bottom of the seat. And I can feel, I can feel the breeze on my derriere right there on stage. Now it's like a semicircle in front of me. No one can see my butt, but I can sure feel there's a breeze back there, right? So I'm a big active walker and speaker. So I normally will walk all around and connect with the audience. This time, however, instead of doing all the walking around, I walked like I was at the circus carnival on a line back and forth, just like this. I just walked straight to the side, back and forth. That's right. That's exactly what I did. And no one knew except for my assistant manager and the other district manager. They were standing backstage. They saw. They were laughing. We like to play a game where we try to mess each other up on stage. They're back there trying to get my attention and trying to destroy me and yes because we are so comfortable in the moment and it's like you said in the moment things are going to happen chaos ensues if the internet goes down if a child runs in if your pants split you know none of those things are going to affect us oh maybe we'll laugh a little bit on the inside and pause it's not going to stress us out why here's why for me me because when i was born uh, I had to have a blood transfusion or I was going to die. Or oh, when I was growing up, I got bullied by this big gang in middle school. Wow. When I was growing up, I moved 17 times in 21 years, military family. I mean, all of these experiences have led me to this place that always do your best to be prepared and be ready 
to accept whatever comes at you. And that's the key of my message at the Eternal Optimist podcast is accept the stuff that you can't control. And when you can do that, then you're good on the inside. You have this inner peace. Now you can just be yourself. And that's how I felt on stage there was, I'm okay with this. I don't want to show my butt to everyone, but at the same time, I'm okay with this happening because everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. I live in America. Of the 7 billion people on the planet, if you stack rank them all, who has resources and whatnot, I have a house. I have a podcast. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Those are just a couple of thoughts that get triggered when you talk about public speaking debacle or challenge. So your turn, Randall. Give us your public speaking challenge that may have come up in your life so far. Well, I got to be honest, in a non-creepy way, I was envisioning this. Um, <laughs> and, and I know it sounds real creepy, but You're I was welcome. envisioning your situation. Yes, yeah, 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 thank you. Um, I do wish it was more recent because maybe it would be during the meme culture generation because I do envision this stage, but somebody from the backstage taking this picture of you ass out facing the audience. There's some sort of caption there that I haven't really thought about how to say just right, (laughs) but it's like most speakers imagine the audience naked. Matt Drinkhan is such a badass. He is naked, and the audience can imagine what he would look like naked. I would love to see come together with a picture, but anyway. Fascinating. I will say, you know, so it's funny. The one thing that probably lent me to being in the military is this idea of prepared, that we're kind of creating this theme. And I'm probably a decent bullshitter. So I haven't had any onstage moments, but I think that I would have had I not self-selected out or had not over-prepared. The one that does come to mind is like more a moment that wouldn't have been had I let a stage fright take over that no one ever saw. So while it wasn't stage fright, like I was on stage, there was debilitating stage fright that I've experienced. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I am not a natural salesperson. I do not like selling. I found myself selling because no one else would. And I am one of those people that will do whatever it takes to win. And so if I'm in a room and nobody else is willing to do it, I'm like, all right, screw it. I'll do it. I don't know where I got that from or why I have it, but I hate to accept limitations that are put on me by myself, I guess you could say. It's the same reason why I went to West Point. I'm like, well, I'm not going to admit I can't do it, so I'm going to go do it. I'm not going to admit I can't make it through ranger school, so I'm going to go do it. Like, I would rather do it and then fail rather than always wonder. There's a famous saying that there's only two pains in this world, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. I will take the pain of discipline all day long. The pain of regret scares the crap out of me. So I'm just fresh out of the military. I'm about to get my MBA at McCombs right here in Austin. Right before the first semester starts, they bring in all of the first years, and there's this event sponsored by Microsoft. And I knew at that point that I wanted to be in venture capital. And there was this program called Venture Fellows. There's only like 15 people get into it. Everybody applies for it. It's a big thing to put on your resume. And I was like trying to network with the people who were already in the class who were going to be on the review board to review my application. I was like, well, I better make friends with them so they'll like me and then maybe they'll pick me. And so they're like, well, come to this event. It's this pitch competition. And I'm like, all right, I don't know what that means, but sure. So Microsoft puts on this pitch competition. So I go in there and they give you like monopoly money. And it's like 400 people, students, graduates, actual venture capitalists, alumni, lobbyists, fun. I mean, 
the who's who of everybody at the University of Texas at this event. And I'm like, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And they're like, all right, if you're here and you're participating, you've got to come up with an idea and you've got to work the room like a cocktail hour. You have one hour to basically pitch all of the people who are pretending to be an investor and whoever gets the most money wins. And so now I'm thinking like, crap, what did I, I could have just not shown up and then no one would know I wasn't here. But if I like try and I fail, I'm not going to get into this program because they're going to be like, this guy sucks. And so I turn around and leave. I walk back probably, it's probably about half a mile where the parking garage is to where this event thing, this alumni center was on campus. So now this competition is like maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. I showed up on time. I've now left. It's probably 30 to 45 minutes into the competition. I'm in my car and I'm sitting there having this existential moment where I'm like, what are you doing? You're quitting and you're quitting before you even started. And so I'm like trying to gas myself up and talk myself into it. And finally, I'm like, well, no one's shooting at you. Nothing's blowing up. It's not going to kill you. Get your ass back in there. And no one would have known that I quit, but I would have known. And so I marched my ass back in there, grabbed my Monopoly money. And it's probably a defining moment in my life. I pitched my ass off. I hated that idea of networking, like approaching a stranger and being like, hey, sir, my name's Randall. Let's talk about something. That just terrified me. But I was like, well, it's not going to kill me. So I did it. And crazy, lo and behold, I won it. I won the whole thing. And it was this moment where it was like, you know, if you can overcome the fun where you tell yourself about why you can't do it or why you're not going to be any good or all of that pessimistic self-talk, man, you can achieve anything. And if you believe it, other people will believe it. Human beings can sense authenticity like dogs can sense fear. And if you just put yourself out there and the rewards are pretty great. And so I was always so happy I did it. And ever since then, I've been talking in front of people. You pitch in the military, but you're presenting battle doctrine and you know battle plans. That was the first time I had pitched as a private citizen, a commercial thing. And for the last 20 years, that's what I've been doing. I've been pitching entrepreneurship, VC funds, tech companies, products. You just got to get going. Believe in yourself, put yourself out there. And what's the worst that could happen? Wow. What an amazing defining moment, Randall. You walked all the way out and then you talked yourself back into it. Any person who's comfortable in here, who doesn't want to face the regret demon later, if I'm hearing you right, yeah. I feel the same way. I would rather face the pain of making mistakes or the pain of discipline than, man, I should have, would have, could have done that. And I regret it. I'm so aligned with you on this one. In your life, how many people, I talk about this with my wife sometimes, and there's a, ah, somebody's got a video they put together for it, but it's like, you are afraid of public speaking because you've never spoke before. You're afraid of being in the game because you've never practiced at the level that you need to. Like when you're prepared, you'll do it. I want people to understand that preparation doesn't necessarily mean you've completed the assignment. Sometimes it's just this journey of the heart. It's being willing to be open to it. You can be prepared to enter into a relationship with somebody, to like expose your heart to heartache and to possibly love and lose. But you can be prepared to enter that journey, even though there's nothing you can really do to study for it. And you can't really assume that you're going to win at it, but you can be mentally and emotionally prepared to engage with it. It's like parenting. You know, you can be prepared to have a child, but no one's really prepared. So people don't need to think that you have to have all the answers to be prepared. You just have to put yourself in a position to 
explore the outer limits of your own potential. And if you're willing to explore the outer limits of your own potential, you'll probably find that you can push them a little further than you thought. I always use these small analogies so people understand this. Anybody that works out, count your reps, whatever they are. Count your reps, start to feel like you want to quit, start to slow down, finish, take a breath, do two more. Ten bucks says you'll do two more. You're not done. It's just like a gas tank. That says you're out of gas, but they know that human beings are inherently irresponsible. And so it's got a little more gas in the tank. You have a little more gas in the tank. And so anytime you think you can't do something, try, and you'll probably find that you have a lot more to offer than you thought. Be the eternal optimist. Mm, Brilliant. I love it. I love it. And I respect the heck out of you for saying it just that way. That embodies what I would call eternal optimism, to keep going, to never give up, to continue to learn from the mistakes, to keep pushing. Love everything you shared. I'd love to bring it forward now. There's two things in your office or in the room you're in I'd love to ask you about. I'd love to ask you about the star, the metal on the wall. And then I'd love to kind of go to the rest of our conversation with your company and the brand that I see over here and what you're bringing to the world. So can you talk for just a moment? What is the metal I see over your left shoulder here, Randall. Yeah, so I got to thank my dad for that because it wouldn't happen. And if anybody can hear this, please don't be me. I am a perger. I'm not a big memorabilia person. I love collecting memories. I don't like collecting memorabilia. And I don't know if I was just young or maybe I was almost embarrassed. I would just throw stuff away. My parents were so good. They were like, you will regret this for the rest of your life. Do not throw anything away. Just give it to us. God bless them. They would take things and then make something of them. So I've only actually had this up very recently, even though I got them a long time ago. So I don't know if you can see this. There's actually two of them. And so those are some bronze stars that I got while I served. And there were things that my dad ended up being more proud of me than I was of me. Got framed and displayed and gave them to me whenever I got out of the Army, which I appreciated. And then also framed... West Point diploma and some other diploma in my MBA and other things. And so you get older, you mature. Surprise, surprise. And I'm so glad that my parents remembered that I would want these things at some point in my life. I'm obviously proud of them, but I wouldn't have held on to them. And I think that whether it's pictures, these tokens that will trigger memories, I think are important. And we live in such a digital age where we're just snapping pictures and they've almost lost all meaning. But like when you go to somebody who was born in 1950 they're going to have actual photo albums. My mom has them by year. And man, that's a special thing to be able to touch and feel something. And so as you're going through your life and you're experiencing things, take mementos and take memorabilia and remember that even if you don't want it, your kids will, or somebody will. And it's always good to have, I love behind you, the books, you know, I've got my bookshelf on the other side of my computer Have physical books, have physical pictures, have physical things, because they'll tie you to those memories. And I think that's really important. Mm. Eloquent. Love the way you framed that. Yeah, if you look around my office, my wife would call it chaos. I call it very organized, emotional anchors. Everything around here has an emotional experience attached to it that makes me smile, including everything I can touch. I mean, right here behind the camera, I have got this little toilet paper roll that my daughter made for me that just makes me smile every day. Oh, I love it. I love it. And how old is she? Well, we've got a seven, a six, and a four, all girls. And so you, yes. Oh, well, yeah. So I had my first a month ago, and she's a girl. 
And we'll need to circle up and say, I want, we need to do a whole podcast on hashtag girl dad. All the things that you wish you would have known, the things that you could teach the next generation of girl dads, and then how we're going to navigate the teenage years and not just ruin our relationships with them. So it's like, how do you get outside your comfort zone and let a girl become a woman and support them and love them and help them, but also try to protect them and not screw it up? So we got a whole other podcast where I need to ask you a bunch of questions about raising three girls. Great question. I'd love to do that. Anytime I get the opportunity, I'll shout out the Front Row Dads and the founder, Jean Roman, who lives right there in Austin. And many of our brothers are down there in Austin. And we're a group that get together to work on being better dads and husbands. And our mantra is family men with businesses, even though many of us, when we came in, might have actually been more businessmen with families. But we strive to live family men with businesses. Wow. Love to chat more about that. Well, you just said it was powerful. I mean, talk about priorities. And the funny thing is, I would say if you could do, I don't think you could ever pull it off, but if you could do a statistical study, being better at being a family man, which I say family man, I like that you said that because it's not just about being a father, it's about being a good partner. So being a good family man, which means you're being good to both your kids and your partner that is in this crazy experience with you, will make you better at business. And I think I've always had this thing that I used to tell, I taught at McCombs for a year on faculty, and I used to tell students that were getting their MBA, just because you're busy doesn't mean you're productive, and just because you're productive doesn't mean you're effective. And I think a lot of people confuse activity with progress. If you are just cranking away on business, you'll convince yourself, well, I got to do this. I got to support my family. And you're probably lying to yourself. You know, yes, you are supporting them, but you could support them better. And if you are more holistic about your view of what real worth and wealth is, you would prioritize that family experience more and it'll make you a better person. I love it. Can you talk to us for a minute about your company and the brand that I'm seeing on your shirt, on your wall? Because I'm incredibly interested to hear about this company you've co-founded six years ago or something of that nature. The company was founded in 2009. I was a part of the story as an investor. So it was angel investing, first seed round, about $1.5 million seed round to start Funware back in 2009. And the idea was simple. It was how do you help large brands transition from web to mobile? So we built the first NFL app, the first NASCAR app. All of Fox's mobile application portfolio, the Olympics, we've done hotels, hospitals, stadiums, you name it. And the idea was, how do you create a mobile application that exhibits game-like mechanics and behavior? How do you use mobile to reach a customer and help engage them? Fast forward to today, having a mobile application is no longer good enough. It's like, what are you doing with that mobile application to delight your users, to make more money, save more money, get more out of the money that you're already spending and enhance real world experiences. And so, for example, today, if you go to Atlantis in the Bahamas, that's an island in and of itself. It's 140 acres. You ever been there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we now are the mobile platform for the entire island. And so basically, when you go to the island now, you can download the Atlantis app, and it's got this immersive, rich, almost three-dimensional map. You can find your way with a real-time blue dot. So similar like when you're waiting for Uber to come get you and you see the car on the map, we do that both indoors and outdoors. So you could be walking down into the aquarium and know exactly where you are and what's around you. You can be walking outside and know everything that's around you, be able to buy stuff. And so... 
it's a really cool way to move us away from looking at this like a big content consumption engine. So yes, this is great for binge watching Netflix. And yes, this is great for fighting with people about politics, but it's really a powerful computer. And if you make that powerful computer location aware, you can reimagine experiences. And so if you think about Disney World, you don't go to Disney World and not download the app. The app helps you explore the property. It helps you understand wait times. You can check out with it. You can use it as your ticket. And so you're turning your phone into a mobile concierge. We do that for everybody else who can't afford the Disney World experiences. And usually that's other hotels, resorts, and hospitals. So how do you demystify the continuum of care? It's actually so important in healthcare, they call it a digital front door. So we build digital front doors for hospitals to reimagine the patient experience, to give you everything in the palm of your hands. And so it's really like an up and coming space. I always say the metaverse is a marketing gimmick. It gets a cool idea. We're years from the hardware and the software realizing the ready player one type of environment. It'll come eventually, but we're not close to it yet. But I frankly think that people are underestimating people. We don't have flying cars. Everyone thought we would in the 80s. Everyone thought, oh, we're eventually going to have flying cars. But People underestimated or maybe overestimated people. I don't trust people driving. I definitely don't trust people flying. We're never going to have flying cars. You know? <laughs> At best, we're going to have like a minority report, autonomous vehicle, 2D mapping of cars. You're not going to see flying cars anytime soon. Probably not in our lifetime. Same thing's happening with the metaverse. You saw it in the pandemic. People are social animals. The bell curve of the human population wants to live in the real world. So with Funware, I don't want to build a metaverse to help people escape to a virtual world. I want to tech-enable the real world to make it a better world. We provide tech-enabled experiences in real life so that you can get more out of your real-world life. Wow. I feel like when you're speaking right now, you've got me excited. I don't know exactly where to aim it. <laughs> if I'm someone that's hearing what you're sharing and it's got me excited, but I'm not exactly sure where to aim it. I own a company or I have a big brand. I'm one of the people and maybe it's in one of those companies you've mentioned. What do I do from here? How do I engage with you? Just, I'm excited. I don't know how yeah. to do something. What might I be able to do? One thing that's easy about me, I'm easy to find. So you can go to funware.com and learn about it. So funware with a PH, if people are just listening. So P-H-U-N-W-A-R-E.com. We're publicly traded. So we're on NASDAQ under the ticker symbol P-H-U-N. So first four letters of that name. And then if you want to reach me, I'd go to LinkedIn. It's Randall Crowder. So it's LinkedIn, the shortened URL backslash, you know, Randall Crowder. Instagram, it's Randall Crowder, R-E-N-D-A-L-L-C-R-O-W-D-E-R. -L -L -E I have at Randall Crowder on Twitter, but I can't remember the password to save my life. So just go to Crowder Official. Elon moved here to Texas, so I'm working on him to see if I can get that account back. But for now, let's just go to Crowder Official. And really, you hit the nail on the head. This is a non-obvious thing that's going to become obvious in a big way. At Atlantis, they made over $1.2 million through the app we licensed to them in less than 10 months. And it's reimagining how people engage with brands by bringing the best tenants of e-com to the real world. We have abandoned carts of the mind in the real world all the time. If you're at Atlantis and you really want to, let's say, buy a Stingray encounter and you pass a sign for it and you think, hey, that'd be fun for the kids. 
And then 30 minutes later, the kids throw a temper tantrum, get in a food fight, and you're pissed off. And all you want to do is go back to the room and hand them off to mom. You probably forgot all about the Stingray encounter. So you got to get people while they're in state. And that's what ClickFunnels is all about. It's what Ecom is all about. And so when you're in the real world, if you honestly think about it, we live very analog lives in a digital world. There's all these tools all around us, but you're walking to the grocery store. What's digital about that? Unless you pull out your phone because you forgot something your wife told you to pick up, you live a very analog experience. You go in, you pick up a physical shopping cart and you put some stuff in it. And then maybe you swipe a credit card when you leave. And the coolest thing about that is you did tap NFC technology to pay. Woo! Where's the holograms? You know, where's the minority report eye tracking that changes all the advertisements to be personalized to you. There's a great big world out there and we're just helping people discover it with better digital tools. And this is exciting stuff to hear. Again, it's hard to comprehend or hard to say why I'm excited, but hearing you speak about it, it makes me want to learn more. It's an exciting time we're in and I'm glad you're on the tip of the spear helping promote this because you were very eloquent in the way you just shared all of that. Even though I don't understand all of it, it's it's great to hear it. Uh, It's great to hear it. it. It's been a while, but I finally, you know, when I started that journey, and it's weird how life works. I would leave people maybe with a version of this. Put your best foot forward. Be the best version of yourself. If you have a choice between being right and being kind, be kind. That's being prepared. I did not realize that I would be full-time, all-in, one team, one fight at Funware, 14 years ago when we did the seed round to start the company. And so it's weird how life works, but it's funny how it can almost be serendipitous. I went on that career, that 10 years of investing in startups and being a backseat driver. And now I've got the car and I'm driving and I'm leading the team and and we're out there making mistakes and trying to be great. And we know where we want to go and it's follow me and, and trying to lead by example. But I don't know that a lot of people understand the beauty of that journey. And I think people, they want it faster. They want it easier. And the thing that you have to remember is that it's not about the pursuit of happiness. It's about the happiness of pursuit. I get bummed when I'm done. When I'm done working out, I'm bummed. Like I'm not going to the destination. Like I love the fight, the struggle, the momentum, the progress. Something goes wrong and you got to ideate, you got to pivot. When you can reframe that in your mind, you are unstoppable. There was a scientific study around Olympic athletes, and they said the same exact chemical response that other people will interpret as nervousness and anxiety, an Olympic athlete interprets as excitement and adrenaline. And it's the same thing they always say, like nothing is neither negative or positive. It's just how you perceive it and how you interpret it. So the same thing can be said for science, like the chemicals. It's not oh my God, my hands are clammy and I'm shaking. It's, I'm fun where I'm excited and let's go. And, you know, like just use that, harness it and go for it. And I think that's a superpower. Whew, man. You got me fired up over here, brother. I'm excited. I really want to go run right now. I want to go and exercise. <laughs> I'm going to the gym after this. <laughs> yeah. Well, heck yeah. Well, I think you just described the way I feel about internal optimism, but I would ask you if you hear the words eternal optimism, what meaning might that have for you? Eternal optimism. Oh, man. It's so funny because I'm not making this up. It's probably something any given, call it one month or three month period of time, I have usually some theme in the back of my mind. 
right now, it's usually triggered by something somebody says. I talk a lot, but another superpower for people is being an active listener. If only to use it as a weapon. I'm not going to be totally transparent. The more you know about people, the better you'll be at negotiating, the better you'll be at building friendships, the better you'll be at networking, the better you'll be at selling. Pay attention to everything. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people just wait until someone's done speaking so that they can speak. Pay attention to everything. So usually when I'm paying attention to something somebody says, they'll say something that'll send me down like a rabbit hole. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then like, it really like opens my eyes to other things. And I forget who said it. And I'm sure it's been said multiple times. But it's kind of this dichotomy of, are you playing a finite game? or an infinite game? And how does that impact your behavior? If you're playing a finite game, you're going to respond to certain things in a certain way, and there's certain thresholds to that. And for anybody that doesn't know what I'm speaking about, I always like to pose this question. If you knew that what you were doing today would make somebody either call it whatever you want, millions of dollars, or incredibly happy, or change the world, but you wouldn't be here when that happened, would you still do it? Leonardo da Vinci died a failure. Nobody knew he was Leonardo da Vinci, but it didn't stop him from creating some of the most incredible art the world has ever seen. What is your, not just your own internal optimist, what is that for you, but what is your true north? Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it a finite game or an infinite game? That's why I keep coming back to that because of that word eternal. Eternal transcends. It's like the difference between being motivated and happy and having conviction, living with joy. Being motivated is finite. Having joy is infinite. Being eternal is infinite. There is no destination. There's no, hey, I've arrived. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for the eternal. I'm good now. I'll take it from here. It's a persistent, constant state of mind that you don't even have to think about. And once you get to that, you are unstoppable. And so internal optimism is all about playing an infinite game, knowing that you know, you're on this planet to be the best version of yourself. And being the best version of yourself might not even be rewarding to you, but it could be rewarding to others. And that's okay. Goosebumps. Fantastic answer. Thank you. Randall, from here, I would ask, is there a book or a couple of books that have impacted you that are on your shelf right now or have just had some impact in your life that you could share with us? Let's see. I got a lot of good ones. The ones I like, actually, and I hate it because now I think people do talk about this book too often, but it's still a good one. I like the stuff that makes you uncomfortable. Like a lot of people right now, and I don't know why, I should give this more time to study because I like to be well-versed. But at least from everything that I've heard, I usually find myself agreeing. I like Jordan Peterson. Please don't cancel me. But like a lot of the stuff he says. I won't cancel I, you. I like him too. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think he's got this whole like incel thing going. And I haven't listened to what has caused that. And, you know, I think some people just hate people and want to use anything to try to cancel them these days. But I like that he takes unpopular topics and tries to give life to a conversation around topics that other people shy away from altogether. And so I like books that make you think, not just, well, I'm going to read them. Of course, I agree with everything that they say, and that's neither here nor there. So 48 Laws of Power is the book that I would recommend. 48 Laws of Power is a very 
man, I don't know. Like, should I admit that I agree with this? Like, it's, it's, there's something <laughs> wrong. They're a little uncomfortable and they're a little savage. But when you really think about it, and if you're being honest, you're like, mm, that's kind of true. <laughs> so I like those kind of books. Great book, man. Rule number one, never outshine the master. I love <laughs> that book, man. I love that book. It's good. It's good. It's a great one. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for that. To, to wrap things up, when you're exercising, is there an inspirational song or music that gets you into the mood? Just something that lets you go and rip it? I am more of a, I call it house music because being at West Point, spending time in the early 2000s, it was always house music. Now kids <laughs> call it EDM. But that's always... But it's funny, it's not like angry. So the reason why I've always liked it is it's usually, I keep going back to the title, if people haven't used Riverside, it's in the top left corner, but The Eternal Optimist. And the house music that I grew up on in the early 2000s was like, if you had a track or a playlist for it, you could call it The Eternal Optimist. Like a lot of house music is not angry music. It's very positive and powerful and about love and life and something you could drive and, you know, looking at the sunrise and just enjoy this kind of beats and it's like transcendent. And so I like very positive things. I watch positive movies and my Instagram algorithm is hacked into motivational quotes, dog videos, cute, funny kid videos, and the occasional soft porn because, you know, Instagram just thinks that everybody wants to see OnlyFans every <laughs> single five seconds. And so I'm like, I don't know what this is. Like I can do without it, um, but you know, it is what it is. Um, and so I just, I love like feeling good after something. I love gladiator kind of epic music. Just let's go take the hill. That's my jam. Wow. Fantastic. This has been enlightening. It's been a fantastic discussion. And I know our listeners are going to get a ton of value from it. Randall, thanks so much for being on today. It's been great. I felt I just met a brother from another mother. Man. I, I loved everything I heard today. and just awesome. So thanks so much. Matt, if I can ever do anything for you, let me know. If you're ever in Austin, let me know. And I would love to, hopefully this is the start of a mini conversation. Absolutely, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.